Good morning. If you would turn your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 20. My prayer has been as we make our way through Samuel that we are reminded even through a, a weak and very flawed king that we have a better king. And no matter what we see in our culture, it's fake news. This is the only news that is true, objective, and will endure. And so we need to be well-versed in this news. And that's why corporate worship is such a critical means of grace for the people of God. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Lord, your spirit inspired this text thousands of years ago and he had an intention when he did it to teach to rebuke to correct and train in righteousness your people that your people might be thoroughly equipped for every good work I pray that your preacher this morning would not get in the way of that we pray that your word would do just that as intended by your spirit, the very spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. On August the 4th, two explosions occurred at the port of Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. A fire had been sparked, and and soon this warehouse that was housing nearly three tons of ammonium nitrate. Ammonium nitrate, which had been stored there for six years without safety measures. Dangerous ammonium nitrate. The very thing that had been used in the Oklahoma City bombing back in the 90s, if you remember. Well, that warehouse caught fire, resulting into these two colossal explosions and a supersonic blast wave radiated through Beirut. It was catastrophic. It destroyed completely leveled buildings. Hundreds of people were killed. They're still coming to terms with how many. Thousands were hurt. 300,000 were left homeless. It was an utter tragedy. Hospitals were filled to past capacity overnight. It was a terrible tragedy. Of course, no one would say that the fire alone was the reason for the explosion. We know that. And we certainly can't blame the fire on the fact that ammonium nitrate, dangerous ammonium nitrate, had been unsafely stored in this warehouse for six years unchecked. The fire simply exposed what had been there all along. That ammonium nitrate had been there all along unchecked. And the fire exposed it, and a horrifying explosion was the result. And that's analogous to how Divisive explosions occur in families. 
in marriages, in, in relationships, and in churches. E external pressures come. Sometimes those external pressures are due to sin. It may be the sin of leadership, as we see in the case with David. It may be some just difficult providence, life in a fallen world, like the pandemic. You can make your debates on whether that was intentional or whatever, but it's an external pressure. So these external pressures come, and what they do is they expose the dangerous individual and corporate sins that were there all along. They didn't cause them. They exposed them. And eruptions are always the result. So David has brought external pressure onto the people of God. He has sinned grievously. He committed adultery. He, he committed murder and cover-up. He brought these sins on the people of God. Now, he had repented, but there's always consequences to our sin, right? But what his actions had exposed in the process was the combustible ammonium nitrate of a divisive spirit, pride, and nominal commitment to the kingdom of God that was there all along with the people of Israel. So his compromise has exposed that. And as a result, there has been a massive, divisive explosion by the time you complete chapter 19. Chapter 19, we saw the exodus of the king. He'd been exiled. And through the death of the son of David, the king is delivered. The people are delivered back into the land, back into Jerusalem. Beautiful typology there, isn't it? And yet, division. That's how chapter 19 ends. Israel and Judah. The ten tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes, and the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. They're going at it over trivial matters. Nothing new under the sun. And now the conditions are ripe for another combustible eruption. Division. Division is the primary fruit of an unstable kingdom. And the first thing we see here in, in at the very first of chapter 20 is division begets, produces divisive people among the people of God. Division begets divisive people. Now notice with me in verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man. How would you like that on your tombstone? <laughs> Whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. Now, it leaves no doubt as to how we are to evaluate this man. Under the inspiration of the Spirit... And the spirit is not as seeker-friendly as a lot of preachers. All right? It says he was a worthless man. He was a man among the people of God. He was a, a man in the covenant community. But this man, 
clearly rejects the king's authority, David. Now notice in the second part of verse 1. And he blew the trumpet, that's an act of war, and said, we have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his own tents, O Israel. Now again, David is the king. He is the Messiah. That's the Hebrew word for anointed one. David is the Messiah who points us to a greater Messiah, right? And so to reject this Messiah is to reject God himself, the Lord. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. So Sheba persuades. He convinces the already discontented people. Discontented, discontented people tend to find discontented people. Well, he, he persuades the discontented, uh, discontented people of Israel, which is the northern tribe, to succeed from what is essentially the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom is expressed through this Messiah, David. Of course, this is the same song, different verse that we've seen throughout Samuel. We saw it with Ishbosheth, right? At the beginning of 2 Samuel. And we saw it with Absalom. It is the primary method of the evil one to bring division with the people of God. It is what he does. That's why there's so much in the New Testament about unity. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And it's easy to keep this as a historical lesson where we just learn about this historical figure named Sheba. But Shebaism is alive and well today among the people of God. Why else would we read about this? So here's a man who's a part of the covenant community. All right? But his divisiveness reflects dangerous ammonium nitrate in his heart. David had sinned, of course, but David was not fundamentally Sheba's problem. Sheba was primarily Sheba's problem. And that ammonium nitrate of sin in his heart had not been diffused by the rule of the Messiah, by the rule of the king, by the authority of the word of God. And growing up, I saw this kind of revolt over and over in Christ's church. I'm convinced, and at the end of the day, you can't blame my departure from the church on anyone but me. I am my biggest problem, all right? But I'm convinced that part of the reason I did not find Christ's church attractive growing up was I saw Shebaism over and over again. In every church I was a member, the people espoused the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, I had one pastor that didn't. That shocked me. Went on a mission trip with him and found out he did not hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. That ruined my trip. But in the main, I was in churches that espoused 
the perfection of the Word of God. And the people there espoused that. But in time, there would be external pressures, like the fire in Beirut. Test of faith that revealed that though they may confess the sufficiency of Scripture, or the, let's just say the inerrancy of Scripture rather, they did not embrace the authority of Scripture. So, this was a typical story in our churches growing up. Let someone in the church hurt someone else in the church. All right? Offend that person. And that person would never, I never saw a reconciliation. That person would never be reconciled even if the offending party was repentant and longed for reconciliation and forgiveness. You could point out to that offended party where you better not pray the Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You could point out Luke 17 where Jesus gives no alternative to the people of God where he says, if a, if a brother sins against you and he repents, you forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and he repents seven times in a day, you forgive him. But too bad. This person has been hurt too deeply. Scripture's authority be darned. And in the same way, to fail to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit are to be gracious with one another in disagreement. Can God's people disagree with each other? Of course they can. But to fail to be gracious in disagreement is a disregard of the authority of Scripture. No matter how much you can define, or well you can define, the inerrancy of Scripture. Lamentably, godly humility in handling differences is often the last grace to be developed. And it has devastation on the people of God. Indeed, Christians are good about turning from scandalous sins. We're good at that. And, and many Christians are good at great commission causes. But, as William Blakey wrote in the 19th century, incidentally, he was born this year, 200 years ago. And I say that because the things he was dealing with are the things you still see today. He says this, when they, that is the people of God, fall into differences, they are prone in dealing with them to leave all Christ's precepts behind them. That's haunting, isn't it? See in what an unlovely and unloving spirit the controversies of Christians have usually been conducted. I saw that growing up. I likely believe you saw some of that. How much of the bitterness and personal animosity they show. How little forbearance and generosity. 
how readily they seem to abandon themselves to the impulses of their own hearts. And unfortunately, this well-worn method of the devil is destructive. Notice in the second part of verse 2, he blew the trumpet, and you see what happens. It's devastating. They withdrew. But notice the second part in verse 2, the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly. There was a people who remained steadfast to the king. You cannot thwart God's kingdom even by treachery. And they followed him from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Israel, the people of God, were always vulnerable to division, as is Jesus' church today. Again, that's why there's so much on it in the Pauline epistles. As a result here, David returns to Jerusalem with only a small part of his kingdom intact. It's had a devastation. And again, he's partly to blame because of his well, notice in verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And we're reminded once again uh, that he is partly to blame. And the king took the ten concubines. Remember, he had added concubines to his family. Scripture never endorses polygamy. Genesis 2.24 is the driving force for all marriage in the Bible. He shall make the one, the two, one flesh. They shall leave and cleave. And David has gone rogue with polygamy and adding concubines to his family. He had left them when he fled Jerusalem. That kind of shows you his disregard for the concubines. And remember, at this point, Absalom had abused these concubines. So he took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and he put them in a house under guard and provided for them but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death living as if in widowhood. These are de facto widows. And what this reminds us is that the best of Israel's kings and I would say, I would submit, the best of Israel's men David causes pain by his sin. And to make matters worse, this king, this godly man, cannot wipe away the tears. And this sadness in the kingdom of God is not merely an Old Testament phenomenon. Countless scores of Christ's people know what it's like to be deeply hurt and have their lives turned upside down by the sin of others. And in some cases, by the sins of their spiritual leaders. It's horrific. But for those for whom this has happened... We have one better than David. We have one much better than David. 
Ones who, one who binds up the brokenhearted. Isaiah 61 verse 1. And one who promises to wipe away all of the tears. Isaiah 25 verse 8. But David, instead of wiping away their tears, is in large part the reason for their tears, right? Again, what the Old Testament is doing is giving us a shadow of one will come by showing us the greatness of David, but also showing us the fallibility, showing us the sins, the weaknesses, the brokenness of Israel's best king. And that brings us to the next part of this passage. Division among the people of God distracts God's people from the mission. All right, notice in verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. Do you remember Amasa? She, he was Absalom's, you could say, general-in-chief. And now he's with David. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed because beyond the set time that had been appointed him. Now let's not forget, now I've tried to bring this out, where Israel was situated, it was situated geographically and providentially. God is provident, right? God is in complete control of everything, and he's working out his purposes. And, and, and so Israel was geographically located between the great world powers, all right, of the day. And so Israel was constituted in Exodus to be a kingdom of priests. They were to function... In such a way to make God's name and God's ways known to the nations. They, they were to display to the rest of the world within its covenant community. The kind of relationships first to God and to each other that God intended for humanity. That's one of the great defenses of the faith. When a, when a pagan who has alienation... And rebellion in his heart and all of his relationships are dysfunctional as a result. He sees the people of God loving each other in spite of their differences. Israel had lost that vocation. A, a divided kingdom cannot carry that out, right? For one, it forced them to focus on the internal strife rather than being God's light to the nations. I saw a great illustration of this yesterday in Ventura County, California. The firemen there were there on mission to put out the fires, the wildfires there in Ventura County. But a wild bull got loose. And so that wild bull was right there attacking the firemen. So instead of putting out the fire, they're having to put up with the bull. That's a good analogy. But notice here, Amasa and Judah were slow to respond. I think that's telling. Many are they who boast of their kinship to the king, but are slow with their fidelity and service to the king. Can that be true of us? 
certainly can be true to the man looking in the mirror. We love cheap loyalty. We love it. We embrace it. Doesn't cost us anything. Well, notice in verse 6. And David said to Abishai, of course, Abishai is his nephew that we tend to love, but no one admits it. It's like the silent majority. Now, Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. That's a big statement. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Who are these? These are the Philistines, right? Converted to the kingdom through David. This is fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, partial fulfillment here. And all the mighty men they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now the fact that Joab wasn't appointed here, though he had been David's top general, impl implies that he's been demoted. And it's likely he's been demoted, though the text doesn't explicitly tell us, for killing David's son Absalom. And he's got an axe to grind. And that brings us to another point. Division among the people of God leads to vigilantism. We tend to go vigilante when there's division. All right? And we see this here. Notice in verse 8. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Mesa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment. And over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is, is it well with you, my brother? Deceit. Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. Has that ever happened to you? Metaphorically. Have you ever committed that? I have. And it's likely you have too. There's nothing new under the sun. We're reading about ourselves here. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Of course, this isn't surprising Joab bats a thousand when it comes to assassinations. He always gets his man. He murdered Abner, chapter 3. He murdered Absalom, chapter 18. And from a fleshly perspective, we could say he had it coming to him. I mean, in a, from a carnal perspective, we could say that Joab's actions here were understandable. He had just finished fighting a bloody battle, a civil war, if you will, against Amasa. And he likely considered him, Amasa, as guilty of treason. 
And so it may have been understandable from our fleshly perspective, but it was wicked. In fact, David, we won't take the time to look at this, but in 1 Kings 2, we'll speak about that wickedness. 1 Kings 2 verse 5. That brings us to our next point in the second part of verse 10. Division brings with it casualties. It brings with it casualties in the people of God. Horrific, painful casualties. Notice in the second part of verse 10. Then Joab and Abishai's brother pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. One of Joab's young men took his stand by Mesa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. So the impression that Joab is giving here is that what's done in the name of David will also be done in his service. No matter how much Joab diverted from David, and how often does he do that? He diverts from David's will and David's ways consistently, but he was so sure he was serving the king. Notice in verse 12. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, by seeing him, stopped. Again, Israel's calling is to be a light to the nations. If representatives of the nations had been there, what would they have seen? They would have seen a God no different than their gods that they worship, the false gods. This kind of division bears false witness against the Lord and, and his accomplishment in his king. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maacah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. It appears that at this point, he only has a small following. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah. They cast up a mound against the city. So this is a siege ramp to get over the walls. And it stood against the rampart and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Now, at this point, there's a lady wisdom that comes. In order to divert a tragedy, this unnamed wise woman intervenes. Notice in verse 16. Then a wise woman. A wise woman called from the city. Listen. Listen. Tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. And then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. In other words, instead of going vigilante, let's counsel together. Let's deal with this wisely. We're the people of God, in other words. I... And one of those who are peaceable, peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. 
very critical city within the nation, a place that's known for its peace, its wisdom, its justice, its equity, a place like that. And then she closes her appeal with a very haunting question. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? That is a haunting question. To do damage to the people of God is to swallow up the heritage of the Lord. That's the language she uses. And I think it's something that all of us need to recognize and realize and be sobered by. When I do damage, and I have, I have done damage. In my life as a Christian, I've done damage to the people of God. I have sinned against the people of God. I've repented. But when I sin against the people of God, I do damage. And and that's what's happening here. And notice in verse 20. Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. This guy is deluded, self-deluded. He's delusional. That is not true, he says. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. So the irony here is haunting. If Sheba had lifted up his hand against David, what had Joab done in murdering the man David had chosen to command his army? Sometimes you can do something that appears righteous, but your motives are unrighteous. Now notice in the second part of 21. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. This is gruesome. Then the woman went out to all the people in her wisdom. They cut off the head of Sheba. Sheba deserved to die. He, he had engaged in an insurrection against the king. Under the law, the Mosaic law, the just penalty was death. And so this lady wisdom is saying, Let this man die and die in such a way that will bring salvation and safety to the rest of the people. And so they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet. They dispersed from the city, every man to his home. Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Unchecked division leads to horrific fallouts. Now you can make the case that Sheba had this coming to him. Absolutely. And Joab, you can make the case, is a loyal soldier to David. But you can't follow the king on your terms. That's the problem. Joab wants to be a follower of David. He wants to be loyal to David, but he does it on his terms. And the text is wanting us to read between the lines. This is what Dale Ralph Davis calls a double rebellion. It's a double rebellion. One is less obvious than the other. Sheba's rebellion is clear. We've seen that. But then more subtly is Joab's 
who appears to be loyal and faithful to the king, but will not be told how to do things by the king. A very dangerous place to be. And Joabism is alive and well in our hearts. Alive and well in our hearts. With the fact that we we espouse him as Savior and Lord and King, but there are areas of our life that will not come under his reign. We sequester them and we rationalize them. That's Joabism. And chapter 20 ends in a way that drives home the tragedy of this unchecked division. The vision we're going to see at the end of this chapter diminishes the influence of the people of God. Notice in verse 23. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Don't lose sight of that. That's new. And Jehoshaphat the son of Hillad was the Recorder and Shiva was the secretary, and Zadok the Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jerite was also David's priest. So, this is the second time we read an account of David's administration. The first time we read about his administration was at the end of chapter 8. All right, now this is important because the differences between the administration we read about in chapter 8 at the end of that chapter, starting in verse 15, and the administration we read here are telling. First, what we see in chapter 8, verse 15 are these words. David reigned over all Israel. David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Well, at this point, David's not reigning over all Israel. See what division has done? It's minimized the influence of the kingdom of God. And it's far from certain that justice and righteousness is prevailing now. I mean, note that Joab is still in charge of the army. That seemed fine in chapter 8, but Joab is a rogue soldier. He does things his way even while he confesses David as king. He is guilty of a lot of blood on his hands and there's nothing repentant about Joab. Not a bit. Finally, David has named someone named Adoram in charge of forced labor. Labor. That, that's slavery. That's slavery. And, and this is new in David's reign. And in time, we don't have time to trace this out, it's going to include Israelites. And it's going to contribute to the eventual permanent division and fracture of Israel for slavery. And yet, in spite of present appearances. And this is so important for us. Because right now, when I turn on the news 
And if I'm not walking in the Spirit, I get angry, I get mad, I get bitter, I get anxious, I get fearful. I have about every negative emotion you can possibly have when I see the chaos in our land. And I see neo-Marxism trying to take over. And I see former, saw this last night, I had to send it to some of my old teammates, a former football coach, a former football coach from my college days, who was a, a strong professing Christian, embracing everything antithetical to Scripture. Black Lives Matter, Marxism, abortion, LGBTQ, all of these things he's embracing. He had a sign in his yard he posted. Love is love. And I read that and I get angry. What we're seeing is horrifying. What we're seeing in Samuel is horrifying. And yet, in spite of present appearances, there's a promise. You cannot develop promise amnesia. What's the promise? 2 Samuel 7. That promise drives the rest of the Old Testament. Indeed, that promise drives the rest of the Bible. That promise drives the rest of history. Son's coming. He's going to be a faithful son. Whereas you and I tend to act like Joab and Sheba, this son comes and fulfills all righteousness. Not one moment of his life did he even think like Joab. Not one moment of his life did he even think like Zeba. He was the faithful servant, covenant keeper for us. And then this king came and he experienced the humiliation of an incarnate life, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God. The death of the cross, being buried in a borrowed tomb for a time, but this king was exalted. Didn't we read about, sing about that this morning? He was exalted to a permanent place at the right hand of the Father. He has been appointed as the victorious God-man for us. As Lord and Savior, the Lord from heaven. And he has accomplished everything for us that... Nothing can be taken away from by the culture. Nothing. It can't be taken away, no matter what we see. He has accomplished our salvation. He has accomplished our eternal destiny. And even in this present age, he promises his covenantal presence and his care for his people. People like us, who are more like Joab and Ziba than we care to admit. He has secured peace, shalom. And the church should reflect that. The church should reflect that. And when it doesn't, we bear false witness to his accomplishment. He has secured reconciliation. That's why we're not... Listen, racial reconciliation, it's already occurred. We're just to walk in it. It's already been accomplished. It cannot be accomplished by changing social structures. It has been accomplished through the blood of his cross.
And now by his spirit, he exposes. This is so important. He's reigning, he's ruling, and he's ruling by his spirit. Having accomplished our salvation, he exposes by his spirit the ammonium nitrate of sin that now resides dangerously in our hearts. But not to cause explosions, but to kill it. That's why he exposes it. To kill it, lest it kill us. So that we might, by his Spirit, love each other in such a way, in spite of our differences and disagreements, that reflects his light to this world and this culture. That is under his judgment. Consider these words from Herman Bavik, and then we're going to partake of the table. I love these words from the great theologian Herman Bavik, late 19th, early 20th century. It's from his third volume of his Reformed Dogmatics. During his, that is Christ's humiliation. Now, what is the humiliation? It's his incarnation. He comes and he comes as our substitute. And he, he lives a life fulfilling righteousness. He goes to the cross. He dies. He, he's, right, he, he's buried in, the, in the, uh, the tomb. That's humiliation. During his humiliation, he never for a moment used his divine power and divine attributes to please himself. Unlike David. All right, Not that he had divine attributes. But he used the gifts that he had to please himself, right? He used his power and authority he had and trusted to him to please himself, but not Jesus. And to defeat his enemies, he fought and won with no other weapon than the cross. Isn't that beautiful? He fought and won with no other weapon but the cross. Self-denial was the secret of his life. Yes, we have a better king than David. And this self-denial is our calling in response to him, right? A self-denial that diffuses the remaining ammonium nitrate of sin that resides in all of us. 